Hello and welcome to another edition of The Muslims Are Coming with me, Ash, and my repressed Francophile baguette-swinging buddy, Billy Bazooka. It's a pleasure to be here, Ash. It's a pleasure to have you, sir. Thank you. On this week's show, we discover how going on safari can prevent extremism, why Muslims are so good at grooming, and what's really happening with the NHS. This week, a British man has been identified as a knife-wielding militant who appears in Islamic State videos, claiming responsibility for the beheadings of US, British and other hostages. It has been confirmed that Mohammed Emwazi, a 26-year-old West Londoner and university graduate, is the militant. He had been given the moniker Jihadi John by a group of his hostages who described him as part of an ISIS cell they named the Beatles. Meanwhile, David Cameron has condemned reprehensible comments by campaign group Cage after it blamed MI5 for radicalising Jihadi John. The campaign group was criticised after accusing the British security services of systematically harassing young Muslims, leaving them with no legal avenue to redress their situation. So who do you think is to blame for radicalising uh, jihadi John, Billy? I knew it was just a matter of time before you asked me a serious question, Ash. <laughs> so just take a few moments to completely lower your expectations. Right, right OK. <laughs> Um, but, I mean, Jihadi John, he's, still, he's really starting to annoy people now, isn't he? Mm. I mean, everyone seems to be getting involved. I read an article in the Daily Mail on the way here about a British solicitor which had the headline, Jihadi John gatecrashed my daughter's wedding in 2011. <laughs> I mean, that is so quintessentially British. Mm. I mean, Jihadi John, he's beheaded dozens of innocent civilians and he's been an active member of one of the most violent and cruel movements in history. But the real tragedy of ISIS for this guy is that Jihadi John didn't RSVP for his wedding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rules are rules, John. Instigate a global jihad in your own time, sir. I'm sorry, John. I, I don't seem to see your name on the list here. <laughs> good day, sir. What? Syria? Never heard of it. No, no. Good day, sir. I said good day, sir. So the media have completely parodied Jihadi John into being an all-pervading evil who's even willing to destroy someone's wedding. <laughs> exactly. I would like a slice of this delicious wedding cake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to burn all these calories I've gained after eating this delicious Victoria sponge cake. Get ready for an inferno. Disco inferno. <laughs> well, I, w- I watched something about this on, uh, on Sky News, actually, where everyone's favourite journalist, Kay Burley... Mm. interviewed Kerry Boulevard yeah, from Yeah, she's great, uh, isn't she? I love Kay Burley. Fantastic. And for those of you who don't know who Kay Burley is, well done. I mean, you're very lucky. You will soon discover her journalistic pedigree. So on air, Kay Burley asked human rights activist Kerry Boulevard how the recent ISIS beheadings made him feel. Mm. So, Ash, let's just recap that for a second. She asked a Muslim human rights activist who has campaigned openly, not only against war and ISIS, but for the release of murdered British aid worker Alan Henning, how he feels about the beheadings of innocent civilians. Well, he is Muslim, though, isn't it, to be fair? Of course. I mean, I don't want to call her stupid, Ash, but I will say she has very bad luck when it comes to thinking. (laughs) So he replied, Muslims are human beings as well. We are shocked when we see beheadings. We should not have to justify our humanity. So your question is inherently Islamophobic and racist. To which she replied, nonsense, get over yourself. (laughs) And then she asked him, having heard what he said, do you condemn Jihadi John's actions? At which point Kerry left the interview and it cut back to her, Ash, and she had this 
self-righteous, sanctimonious, supercilious grin on her face, which made you think, you know what? Somewhere in England, there is a village deprived of its idiot. <laughs> well, it's just it's just a total dehumanization of this Muslim individual, isn't it? Which is sadly perennial to many minorities and women across the board. And another thing, Ash, is that I've completely ignored your question. I'm so sorry, bro. Uh, who's to blame? I mean, I don't know. It, it's confusing, isn't it? Because so far, with regards to jihadi John, people have blamed religion, extremism, foreign policy, the MI5, and his former head teacher even blamed the parents for not keeping their eye on, on mm. the children, which I found particularly ridiculous because I don't remember anyone criticising the parents of Rolf Harris or Jimmy Savile. But um, having superbly answered your question, Ash, my question to you is, who do you think is to blame for all this? Well, it's a, it's a complex one, isn't it? Because, you, you know, Cage, who are these organisations, I don't know if you've, uh, if you've been following them in the news, they've been everywhere this week. Yeah. But they've got an interesting narrative where they think that the way that young Muslims who could be prone or susceptible to ra- radicalisation are actually being pushed over the edge because of policies towards them by certain government institutions that have a lot of power. And in this, this case, MI5 and obviously the right got hold of it so the next day all the right wing press was you know splattered with cages a terrorist front it's yeah. you know it, it's uh, al-qaeda light all of that sort of stuff yeah so since then cage have received a lot of criticism from the press and wider public yeah that's right and i think that it that's um very disappointing because cage did raise f- a few issues which i think are relevant for the debate that we're having on radicalization in answer to your question mm. So uh, the influence of foreign policy, for example, is something that Cage continuously raised because they argue that whether you believe it or not, on face value, every person that's been involved with terrorism has claimed foreign policy to be the fundamental factor behind their actions. Right. So then essentially it's a political issue. So when okay. Cage talk about foreign policy, it's something that we need to, to be talking about. To what extent does foreign policy play a role in kids becoming radicalised? Yeah. But I would say that it's not the only thing. There are other things as well that contributes to the process of radicalisation. Such as? Well, first of all, not every young Muslim in Britain is going off to the Middle East. Mm-hmm. The cases of that happening is very, very, very minuscule relative to the British uh, Muslim population. Secondly, the kind of kids that are going over clearly have had behavioural problems, clearly have had... Psychological uh, issues, psychological socio-economic issues. problems. Absolutely. Each one of those cases, there's something that's gone wrong. Either their families have let them down or their community has let them down or the state have let them down. That's so obvious. Somebody doesn't, at one stage, grow up in West London and then at the next stage go to the Middle East and start chopping people's heads off on camera. There's something that happened which was quite traumatic in that person's lifetime. Whatever it is, that yeah. has contributed to that, right? Yeah. So that's a factor. Politics is a factor. In the olden days, racism was a big factor in making people feel disenfranchised from yeah. society. Islamophobia is a new face of racism. So God knows what these people faced as being purely Muslim. I would, I would have to agree with you, Ash, because in a lot of the cases where the terrorists or murderers or criminals were not Muslim, mm. they were cited as having severe psychological issues. Absolutely. However, when it comes to uh, Muslims who have perpetrated the exact same crime, uh, they are given the liberty of having full cognitive control over their own actions. Yeah. And do you think that's fair? If people are really serious about fighting extremism, then we have to really, really think about everything with regards to the fight. 
right? right? So we have to consider people's medical conditions. We have to consider people's upbringing. We have to consider people's motivations. They have to, you know, there needs to be a really methodical, intelligent approach to how we deal with these youngsters being radicalized. Mm. And fobbing them off as just some loonies or part of some loony block, yeah. some fifth column in society is not helpful. Yeah. And speaking of Cage, I mean, do you think Nicolas Cage has received any abuse for being an ISIS <laughs> apologist? Have him and Kira Knightley ever been involved in a film? I don't, I don't think they have, though, but Hollywood should make that happen. Cage, starring Kira Knightley as Nicolas Cage. <laughs> an actress whose talent is exceeded only by everyone else's. <laughs> Now, this week, the Times ran a headline, Call for National Debate on Muslim Sex Grooming. An urgent national debate is needed to address the disproportionate number of Muslim men among groups convicted of using and selling young teenagers for sex, according to a landmark report. Failings by police and care professionals led to more than 370 young girls in Oxfordshire falling victim to conveyor belt sex crimes over the past 15 years. A serious case review published yesterday concluded. That's shocking, isn't it? I mean, Kay Burley may suggest that Islamophobia doesn't exist, but a headline like that is truly misleading, isn't it? Mm. I mean, let's just forget the collective failures of politicians, the police and the social workers who are actually accused of neglecting these victims. (laughs) And let's blame Islam. Yeah, well, it's easy, isn't it? It sells newspapers, bro. Stop hating. Just because you haven't got money. <laughs> Sorry, Rupert. But I think there should also be a call for a national debate on white middle-aged men employed at the BBC. Yeah, absolutely. You've got Rolf Harris, Stuart Hall, mm. Jimmy Savile. Yeah. And it's also funny how the great train robbers were never described as <laughs> Christian criminal gang <laughs> or the mafia as Catholic organised crime syndicate. Um, how about the Shinto karate shoppers, <laughs> a.k.a. Yakuza? Father Jack. The Ripper. <laughs> um, yeah, another attack on prostitute in the East End today, believed to be by psychotic Protestant sex pest, Jack the Ripper. And of course, blacky black, 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 black man, <laughs> sex pest, Bill Cosby. <laughs> Caucasian cross-bearing crusader, Andres <laughs> Bevick. <laughs> All jokes aside, Ash, there seems to be a gratuitous use of the term Muslim in the media, doesn't there? Mm. To use an example this week, two women were charged with the murder of a young girl, which had absolutely nothing to do with religion. I mean, one of the murderers was born to a Sikh family who later became a Jehovah's Witness. Mm. But the Daily Mail posted a link to the article and the link is, and I am not joking you, Ash, this mm. is word for word. Yeah. You can check it yourself. Muslim lesbian tortured eight-year-old daughter, death behest vampire-loving girlfriend, thought stop, gates of hell opening. I mean, not only does that sound like the worst sequel to the Twilight Saga ever, (laughs) but I would say that article is slightly misleading, wouldn't you say? Just a little bit. I think you've been listening to angry Muslim news too much. (laughs) Angry. And now it's time for Checks Daniels in the Middle East. Oh, for fuck's sake, Billy! Hello everyone and welcome back to Chax's Muslim News. Angry. Angry. I've been living away from the UK here in the Gulf for quite a while now as an expat, which is the same as an immigrant, but I have a swimming pool. But as an immigrant expat, I follow the news of back home with 
with a smug, I told you so, curiosity. I'm a little upset that the NHS is being dismantled, but at the same time, it allows me to sit here and judge you all. And with 5.5 million British people who live permanently abroad, I say shame. shame. And I say that in English, because we don't bother too much with the learning of the local language. It's too harsh on the throat. <laughs> but I have problems here that you don't have over there. For example, every day here we deal with the fear of ISIS. <laughs> Are they here? Will they come? And what will happen to my health insurance premiums if they do take over the state? The only thing you could say is that headaches will be cured once and for all with ISIS at the helm. The MAC edgy joke of the week. But I'd rather stay here to be honest with you. It's not just the overpaid work and the overworked servants, but it's the comfort of being able to fear ISIS in peace. In the UK, Muslims seem like they have to, on the one hand, be afraid of ISIS taking their children, murdering their families back home, destroying their homelands and places of worship. And on the other hand, they have to distance themselves from these maniacs on a daily basis. But what makes me truly angry is however well we do, one brother will inevitably turn up and make us all look backwards and barbaric. For example... Recently, the Daily Mirror find this one NHS worker from Hammersmith Hospital who on his Facebook says, ISIS are okay and HIV is a punishment for the wicked. Great. Now even our disease examples are dated. HIV? Why not throw in a fatwa against shoulder pads or the immoral conduct of Duran Duran? Absolute idiot. I mean, come on, man. Um, I'm really sorry, Ash. I genuinely thought you could bring it round this week. Stop thinking, Billy. So our hot topic this week was going to be on feminism, but then we realised that nobody really cares. Only joking. We are still very excited to be discussing feminism, but had to postpone because next week we are truly honoured to be hosting writer, journalist and academic Miriam Francois Gerard. Instead, this week, we're going to be focusing on the NHS. Is it a political weapon for politicians? Is its privatisation inevitable? And why has Billy still got chickenpox? <laughs> Acne is no laughing matter. We are particularly delighted to welcome Dr Montgomery Trench, who is a paediatrician at one of London's top NHS hospitals. Thank you very much, Dr Trench, for your time, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I feel particularly honoured to be on this show because I've listened to it quite avidly. Ash, I follow you on Instagram. Love what you did with your hair last week. <laughs> uh, thank you, Dr. Trench. So we'll, we'll jump straight in then. Can you explain to our listeners what privatisation is um, for anyone who doesn't quite get it? OK, so most people don't quite get it, including doctors. And it is a quite convoluted and complicated procedure. It's not as simple as saying, right, you've got this public sector service and, oh, we're the Tories and we're going to steal it and now make it private and pay us money. It's very complicated, and I think deliberately so, actually. Now, what I will say is that, look, the NHS is this huge, gargantuan being. It's ridiculously complicated, but you've got different services, right? So in hospital, you've got maternity, paediatrics, geriatrics, cardiology, and then outside in the community, you've got GPs, you've got other clinics where people can get dressing changes, all that kind of stuff. Now, all of those services are cut into different segments, 
Now, what the Health and Social Care Act down in 2013, you might remember it, um, what that did was to say that, look, a lot of these services can be put out to tender now. So it can be competed for and private companies are part of that tendering process. Mm. So the thing is that that was actually going on before the Tories even came into power. Right. Right. But I think they've just ramped it up like 50,000 notches so that essentially most of these services are now available for private companies to run. So why is it a bad thing for these services to be privatised? Right, so you could could look at it and say, look, private companies, they're not necessarily the devil, whatever, okay? However, private companies, their primary motivation is profit, delivering a profit to their shareholders. Now, this is not always in competition with the healthcare of patients, but it can be. Because if you've got a service that is, in their eyes, too expensive to run, they're going to be cutting costs. They're going to be saying, right, well, we can cut staff here, cut staff there. Now, that might not seem like a bad thing at the time, but it can have devastating consequences a bit later on down the line. So say, for example, um, with hospitals. In hospitals, let's face it, doctors are pretty much the kings of the hospital. We are, we seem very, fairly untouchable. Even we haven't been untouched by this, but a lot of these people like nurses... Uh, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, healthcare assistants, they're the ones whose necks are going to be on the block. So it's the nurses and all the auxiliary staff that are really the ones that are are up against it. So say, for example, nurses that have been working on a ward for 10, even 20 years, Mm. they're suddenly being told, oh, look, we're going to have to renegotiate your contract and we're going to have to put you down a band and and a lot of these people they've got mortgages they've got families so they simply can't afford to stay on and that's heartbreaking really to see because the whole culture of the place whole ethos of the place is being sort of ripped to shreds okay now we know that the elections are coming up in may and i've got a mate who's a surgeon and i asked him whether he thought the tories were destroying the nhs and what he replied was quite interesting because he said that the labor party were just as bad as the tories and according to him whenever a new party comes into power They completely revamp the NHS. Uh, And before they can see the actual benefits, it all changes again and you're back to square one. Would you agree that that's what's going on? And what are the different Mm. party positions on what's good for the NHS going, going forward? Sure thing. So first thing, I agree with your friend that... There, is, there are a lot of games that are being played with the NHS and that's why the British Medical Association has started this new campaign called No More Games reflecting that mm. that a lot of the parties are giving off a lot of platitudes and that other parties have been complicit in the state that the NHS finds itself in so right. for example um, a lot of the privatisation that is going on it started at least in a small fashion ever since Thatcher was around mm. it picked up pace when Alan Milburn was a health secretary under the whole new Labour thing and we all know what happened with that yeah. and then it's just been ramped up in 2013 uh, with the Tories, with the coalition I should say. With regards to what the different parties are saying, I mean look, a lot of their promises sound similar so George Osborne said, oh I'll put another 2 billion in, Ed Ball says I'll put another 2.5 billion on top of that, he does say that he's going to roll back the 2013 changes Lib Dems, well, no one really listens to them now. And UKIP, oh, UKIP are UKIP, aren't they? I mean, there's secret documents that have been leaked that say that they want to privatise the NHS even further. Within the modern political class, there are massive conflicts of interest here that are just not reported on. So a third of all coalition MPs have links either from contributions or shares in private healthcare companies i mean when you think about that that is nuts i've got a quick question which is a bit more serious Mm. i bought this alternative skin treatment on the (laughs) internet 
and I've been using it for about three years now, but I'm pretty sure that it's just pigeon blood. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, Dr. Trench, are there any benefits to alternative medicine or okay. is it just maligned because of the power of corporate pharmaceutical companies? So, <laughs> so I'm going to put my serious hat on for a second. I'll say that, look, alternative medicine, there are different types. So there's one type that is just herbal treatments and remedies that may have some sort of value, but just hasn't been proven yet. Like strepsils. Okay. <laughs> No, so lots and lots of drugs that we find. The majority of drugs that we find now are from the Amazon rainforest. There are actual herbs that have been processed. So so basically, uh, alternate, people think that alternative medicine is just herbal stuff. But that's what your medicine is anyway. It's just a bit more processed so that it does you more good. Otherwise, you'd have to eat 50 kilograms of willow bark just to bring your temperature down. So the alternate medicine thing is like this huge canopy. Some of the stuff is bonkers, right? But some of the stuff actually has some value. So say, for example, acupuncture. It's been shown to actually be of benefit in chronic pain that hasn't responded to, to medicine. However, there's other things like homeopathy, which is complete nonsense. Right. It's literally like it's just sugar pills. Right. So back to this skin treatment. Do you think I should stop <laughs> using it then? Or? I think you should probably it's starting stop. to smell now. And actually... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's getting pretty bad, Dr. Trench. <laughs> I think you should probably stop using the pigeon blood. It's not doing anything for your complexion. I think it's all... Uh, 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 inability to deal with the modern world because they say oh vaccines it's chemicals and we don't like them yeah but you're still using computers you're still putting that mobile phone next to your head okay Dr Trench just one final question before you have to fly off and take care of all your patients and we do really appreciate your time here uh, no what do you think then is the future for the NHS I think if I'm having my positive hat on I think that people in this country will finally realise that you know their lives yeah, their lives are being put in jeopardy and they'll rise up and there'll be a revolution and it'll be justice all around and we'll turn back the clocks and the NHS will be fully free and, and, and all the rest of it. <laughs> My pessimist and possibly realist how it will be that now that the, op- the doors have been opened to the wolves, they'll just keep coming and coming and coming and chip off bits of the NHS. And unfortunately, by the time we're old men, we'll have a, a USA style system where even if you're going to the hospital with, you know, serious illnesses and serious injuries, the first thing they will ask you is, what's your credit card number? Okay, Billy and I would really like to extend our very warm thanks for you coming to our show today. Um, And keep on fighting the good fight, sir. Okay, so we've got an email this week from Adam Youssef in Ilford, and he asks, Dear the Muslims are coming, when you're abroad, what do you miss most about Britain? So what do you think, Rosie? Um, I think my one, this probably relates more to London than to Britain generally, but I miss how progressive, relatively progressive London is in terms of its race relations, I suppose, because, (laughs) because, um, like, for example, when I've been to New York in the past, there's like street by street segregation. And, Mm. you know, in the Gulf, all the kind of menial jobs are done by the South south asian community standard right. whereas in london i think i take for granted it makes me realize how i take for granted the fact that it's it's you know really mixed what do you think ash well i was going to ask rosie if she missed baked beans because <laughs> that, that was that was i'm a bit was that, was that your answer ash well no it was it was similar mine was tea i really miss tea i like right. a nice cup of tea yeah i mean tea is hard to find in in asia isn't it ash <laughs> <laughs> but what about you billy what are you saying well i'll tell you one thing that i don't miss ash unexpected item in the bagging area <laughs> rail replacement service 
or the TFL. I mean, the TFL is so annoying. Mm. It's like Americans, they come over here and they're like, ooh, why are British people so depressed? Yeah, you try going on the train for one hour with your head in someone's armpit and someone's knee in your groin. you got to pay for that kind of treatment in Soho, Billy. I think she wrote Fifty Shades of Grey whilst being stuck on the Northern Line. <laughs> and the thing is, TFL, I mean, it's crowded, it's packed, it's late, and they really know how to turn the screw. So when you're on a crowded platform and you've been waiting for like half an hour... The worst thing that you want to hear is boo boo. A good service is running on all lines. I mean, <laughs> lies, makes, lies. Yeah, it makes you burn. But you can't do anything about it because you're English. So you just take it. You just hate TFL, Billy, because that's the case everywhere. <laughs> I do. I have a massive, unbelievable, fundamental <laughs> hatred for that money grabbing, scheming. <laughs> <laughs> that is known as the TFL. So why do you, where, where does this hatred for TFL come from? I know where from, you're Billy? going with this, Ash. I can, I've known you too long. <laughs> I've known you way too long to know exactly where you're going with this. And the answer is no. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the fact that I'm Gujarati. <laughs> Thank you once again for listening to The Muslims Are Coming. Don't forget to tune in next week when we'll be discussing feminism with Miriam Francois Jura. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for having me, Ash. Still a bit much, I reckon.